Welcome to SACPA. My name's Dwayne Pendergast. I'm your moderator today. And we're starting to record now, so please turn off your cell phones check and check the payment basket to ensure no one has forgotten the $12 lunch fee. And for newcomers, and I think we have some today, I know we start with a 25 to 30 minute presentation. Then we break for a 30 minute lunch, followed by a 30 minute question period, starting about 1 p.m. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker for today, Dr. Jack Mintz. Dr. Mintz is the President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy at University of Calgary. His long list of accomplishments was cited in the SACPA flyer. Uh, I won't include them all, or I won't discuss them all, but they do include Alberta Venture Magazine's recognition of him in its list of most influential Albertans in 2008, 2010, and 2013. He's also a member of the Order of Canada. And I'm sure some of you have read and appreciated his articles in the National Post and the Financial Post. His latest article there addresses Canada's taxes in the context of the forthcoming Trump era south of the border. He will talk to us today about the role of carbon taxes in Alberta's and Canada's economies. His talk is titled, Pricing Carbon Dioxide, How to Bell the Carbon Cat. And surely the election of Mr. Trump subsequent to our choice of that title emphasizes its pertinence. The podium is yours, Jack. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be down here in Lethbridge, uh, except for the fact when I went out to the car this morning, it felt rather cold, uh, which kind of reminds you that sometimes there are some positive aspects of global warming that uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't completely uh, dispel. Uh, this is a, a really complicated topic, and even in 25 minutes or or so, trying to cover the breadth of the topic is is uh, almost impossible. This is rather, uh, I hope you're getting, uh, this has a bit of feedback. Okay. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very complicated topic, as, uh, as I was saying, uh, when you're looking at uh, carbon policies. And, and, uh, and last night I spoke uh, at uh, the University of Lethbridge's downtown campus uh, in, in the Penny Building. And I had a much longer time, and even then, uh, with all the questions and everything afterwards, uh, an hour and a half was not sufficient. So uh, uh, we'll have to try to uh, keep to uh, uh, a discussion, of, uh, which I'm going to be a lot more pointed in terms of my uh, uh, comments today about carbon policy, particularly uh, in Alberta. Uh, I won't be talking about Ontario's cap and trade system, and there was uh, just a, a note out this uh, morning that the Auditor General said it's going to cost in the first year $8 billion with very little impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, that tells you that this is a topic uh, that's going to be uh, uh, highly discussed uh, over the coming coming years in every province uh, which is going to be dealing with, with carbon pricing. So let me first uh, begin really uh, just saying something about uh, the elements of the Alberta carbon policy. Uh, 
And uh, it begins really, as everyone knows in this room, uh, a tax, which originally is uh, $20 this um, coming year and then moving up to $30 the following year. Uh, uh, Premier Notley now has announced after the pipeline approval for Kinder Morgan and Line 3 uh, that Alberta will also go ahead with uh, uh, the, the Liberal National Plan of moving up to a $50 uh, tax. It uh, wasn't quite clear whether she'll do it by 2022, that's in the Liberal Plan. Uh, Alberta's carbon tax was always to, uh, to increase, in fact, it was supposed to increase at least uh, 3% in real terms or 5% roughly once you take into account inflation every year. $3 billion, uh, under $50, one would be talking about $5 billion in revenue. And that's a, that's a lot of uh, change. And one should not minimize how, small, uh, how significant that is. That's a just to give you an idea, if you had an HST in Alberta of 5% on top of the federal GST of 5%, uh, that would raise about the same amount of revenue by taxing all goods and services in the economy at 5%. So it's a, it's a pretty large number. And, and one should take that into account. And of course, uh, in terms of the actual uh, impact on prices, uh, we know at $50 uh, that uh, gasoline prices would go up about 12 and a half cents per liter. Uh, electricity prices roughly, uh, it depends on really, you know, what we'll see what electricity markets are gonna be doing in policy terms in, in the future. Uh, but uh, some, some estimates suggest 13% price in, uh, increase in, in prices. The natural gas heating would go up 30%. And so those are, are fairly significant, especially if you're lower income and you're buying food and you're paying for uh, your housing costs and things like that, and you're trying to get by on things. When you have increases in energy uh, prices that are significant, then that makes you have to make difficult choices between necessities, uh, including, uh, including fuel and electricity. And that, of course, is why the Ontario government has become very unpopular lately uh, because they have actually forced that choice as electricity prices have gone up quite a bit in Ontario uh, to help pay for all the subsidies for green energy there and the way that they've handled the system. In fact, I have a place in Toronto and I have a place in Calgary 
and my uh, my electrical bill in uh, in Toronto uh, is uh, between 11 to 13 cents a kilowatt hour, which is about four times more right now than in Alberta. Um, but uh, it also, uh, on top of that, there's, there's the debt retirement charge, the HST, uh, the distribution charge, and one other charge that I forget the name of. Um, and of course, uh, uh, the, you know, Ontario government recently announced taking the HST off electricity and to eliminate the debt retirement charge because of the, of the, uh, the pushback that they're now getting uh, by both businesses and households in Ontario for, for these higher costs. So that's why you know having you know a set of policies and what it means is quite important uh, because carbon tax itself is going to have important impacts, but of course they can be offset by by because of the amount of revenue that's being raised uh, to help uh, maintain the competitiveness of of a mar of, uh, of industry, <coughs> as well as particularly help uh, lower income individuals deal with the uh, regressive nature of carbon taxes, and so under the uh, under the um, uh, Alberta plan. Uh, there's been a small business tax cut. Uh, there's been uh, there's green subsidies. In fact, about if, if I recall, roughly one third of the revenue, uh, at least the pa the three billion that was supposed to be raised, uh, is uh, is going to go into green subsidies uh, you know, for thirty. So that thirty percent electricity will be renewable electricity. Uh, and uh, and there's also. Uh, uh, a uh, what I'd like to fondly call Rachel Bucks, naming him after Ralph Bucks. Uh, there's uh, there's money that's going to be paid as a demographic to uh, households up to ninety thousand dollars, which is actually quite high uh, for what compared to what other uh, jurisdictions have been doing. There's been no cut in the general corporate income tax rate, uh, or to help those businesses that are not small and are not uh, emitters. Uh, there will be under the carbon tax a number of exemptions and special output subsidies to lessen the impact of the carbon tax. Um, and, uh, and of course there will be, uh, but there isn't anything for, let's say, manufacturing and service uh, larger firms uh, that are going to be facing higher costs. And so there will be a competitiveness challenge that's going to be introduced uh, as a result. Now, of course, this contrasts with uh, what happened in British Columbia where British Columbia brought in its carbon tax, it's mainly at the, at the uh, consumer level, uh, their consumption tax, uh, and it also uh, includes uh, some offsets for low-income people, not as generous as the ones in Alberta, uh, but they put, used a significant, not all the revenue, but a significant part of the revenue uh, for personal and corporate income tax rate reductions to help uh, maintain competitiveness of businesses, so it's a very different approach in that way. Um, and then in terms of the greening, uh, we have to remember that uh, even though there's a carbon tax that has been brought in in Alberta, you know, at a, you know, at a certain price, uh, there's still implicit prices that are being imposed, implicit carbon prices, uh, with various regulations. Whether it's the phasing out of coal or the cap on oil sand emissions, uh, green subsidies, as I mentioned earlier on, all those things carry a price with it. Uh, and to give you an example, uh, a study that recently came out in Alberta, or in Canada, uh, the, car the equivalent carbon tax associated with uh, low carbon fuel regulations, which is mainly ethanol uh, or biomass to be used in, in fuel, uh, is equivalent to a $180 carbon price. And of course, uh, for coal, I'm not sure exactly what the carbon price associated with that, uh, but it's certainly well more than uh, $50 when you're phasing out coal, and it's, uh, because there's a cost that's going to be associated with that. Um, 
And so that raises, I think, a, a whole set of questions about where are we really, or what are we really trying to achieve uh, with our carbon price? And, and this is where I want to go back to really the main point in which I want to say, which is that uh, assuming that one does want to uh, price carbon because of issues around climate change, the concern over greenhouse gas emissions uh, leading to uh, higher temperatures, and we're talking long periods from now relative to political cycles, because when one's talking about 2100, governments aren't, usually only have four years in their, th in their thinking. Uh, so when you're looking at much longer periods, uh, you know, if you're putting on a, a price on, on carbon, uh, because you are concerned about reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions to be, uh, to be emitted to, to the air around the world, uh, what is really the best approach? And really what I want to say is that I think there are two uh, particular uh, principles I think should be in mind. Um, the first principle is that whatever carbon pricing one uses, it should be done at the lowest economic pos uh, possible cost. Uh, it's going to create some dislocation. It is going to create some costs of some sort to the economy, but one should try to do it at the least cost possible. And, and usually what economists would argue, like myself, uh, is that the least cost would be to have a uniform uh, single price on carbon, letting businesses and households take those actions that will try to reduce the, the cost of carbon in terms of their budget uh, by reducing that amount of tax to be paid by simply voiding, emitting uh, as much as they can. And that's what economists will normally argue is the appropriate uh, way of doing it, not having a whole configuration of different implicit prices on carbon that you get with various regulations uh, that are put in, into place. That's the, that's the first principle. Um, the second principle is that uh, the revenue uh, should be uh, used to create what's called the double dividend. And the double dividend is, uh, is the first dividend is uh, whatever environmental policy you have, it should be effective in reducing emissions. Uh, but the second one uh, is that uh, if you get revenue, as the government can get under a carbon tax, as well as auctioning off allowances under a cap-and-trade system, that if you get that kind of revenue, you should use it to reduce the most harmful taxes in the economy. And, there, and economists have pretty well uh, done a lot of estimates of what these uh, uh, taxes are in terms of what economic <coughs> costs they impose on the economy by discouraging people's work, uh, risk-taking, investment, uh, et cetera. And, and by and large, there's been pretty well uh, a uniform view in the whole world about what are the most harmful taxes in the economy, and they tend to be income taxes. Uh, and, and, the, and it's income taxes because they tend to discourage investment the most, they tend to be most complicated, uh, they tend to discourage risk-taking the most, and they tend to have very high economic costs associated with it. Which by the way, the corporate income tax is actually the most costly of all taxes to raise because of the distortions it imposes on the economy. And so if you use the carbon revenue to reduce the most harmful taxes in the economy, such as what BC did, at least to a certain degree, then, then, then you are actually getting a better, better carbon policy, while at the same time you can protect people from the worst effects of the, of the carbon tax and raising consumer prices, and they can get some offset through some reduction in uh, personal and corporate taxes which is, of course, helpful to businesses uh, as well. So it's, 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 to me, those, that is really the right approach, and BC had very much the right approach uh, when they brought in uh, their carbon tax. Now, what I don't think is needed is a whole bunch of regulations on top of it. 
Because if you really do price carbon, you don't need to phase out coal. People will naturally move away from coal to natural gas, which is actually fairly cheap now. Uh, nuclear energy, which is certainly another uh, viable renewable with, with uh, no greenhouse gas emissions associated with it, uh, et cetera. They don't need to be, you don't need to subsidize or, or require renewables to be part of the electrical system, nor do you need as part of your mandate uh, to put a cap on oil sands uh, in terms of overall emissions if you, if you have a, an appropriate carbon price uh, that's, that's imposed on on oil sands as a result. And so uh, what I'm seeing when Alberta's doing it and, and Ontario's even doing it more, uh, what I see is that actually uh, governments uh, talking about repricing carbon, but then on top of it they heap a bunch of implicit prices causing a whole number of different prices, different types of you know, implicit and explicit carbon prices on the economy, uh, some of which are very high cost in terms of trying to reduce carbon emissions, uh, of which uh, things like trying to subsidize electrical cars actually is one of the most expensive ways of trying to reduce carbon emissions today. So uh, that I think is, is really, uh, I think, uh, one of the important principles that we should be looking for is, is efficiency in, in carbon pricing, have it uni uh, uniform and try to do in the least cost uh, way possible uh, in, in terms of trying to reduce carbon uh, emissions uh, as part of the overall policy. I think the second principle that I would like to emphasize is keeping in mind uh, international competitiveness. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the five big emitters in the world, and just to give you the idea of the numbers, uh, the five big emitters are China, which has 25% of greenhouse gas emissions uh, around the world, United States 14%, uh, European Union 10%, uh, India 7% and Russia 5%. If you add those numbers up, that's uh, three-fifths of all GHG emissions around the world. In fact, I often uh, wonder why do we have these huge conferences bringing 180 countries together when really it's the five big ones that really we need, you know, we need them to take the action and, 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 and agreement and with their economic power they can get a lot of other countries to follow suit afterwards. Uh, in fact, they're really key if you really want to do anything. Canada is only at 1.6% of emissions. For us to try to be the leader and ahead of everybody else could actually hurt us in terms of our trade-exposed industries, which can cost jobs and, and can hurt incomes uh, if we're not careful. And of course, our biggest uh, trading partner, 75% of our exports uh, go to this one particular country, and that's the one south of the border, uh, United States. And of course, uh, uh, I think a, a position where we try to harmonize on a regional basis our carbon policy with the United States and Mexico makes a lot of sense because that's really where our key competition uh, is uh, for, for many years hence. And of course, if we try to pursue a policy that's uh, quite different uh, than the United States, uh, the implications are that for <coughs> certain industries, they may find that it's no longer viable to operate in Canada because of cost competitiveness. So just imagine if uh, under, the, under, the, under the Ontario cap and trade system, as an example, uh, that if, uh, if you're a manufacturing company and you're facing $500 million in extra costs under the carbon tax, you can choose to, stay, to continue operating in Canada or you can choose to operate uh, down in the United States, especially in one of the lower states where 
the regulations aren't as uh, on the labor side aren't as difficult as in Canada, uh, or you can go to Mexico where, of course, we know there's very low wages. And unfortunately, we can't have a Donald Trump as a leader in Canada who will say, well, we're not going to, we're going to put a tariff on you if you try to move jobs out of the country uh, because we're not that big of a market. And they can say bye-bye. It was nice knowing you, but really we're most interested in the American market anyway. And so I think, I think we have to uh, be very careful in terms of making sure that our carbon pricing is, I think, consistent in North America. And if it's not uh, consistent, we... Uh, we will, we will uh, put some companies at jeopardy. Uh, there would be probably a fall in the exchange rate uh, because a carbon tax falling through into exports will reduce the demand for the Canadian dollar because we would be exporting less and that would mean that the Canadian dollar would fall. But we have to remember a falling Canadian dollar is not a good thing. That means we're just getting poorer relative to the rest of the world in terms of our ability to purchase goods and services from the rest of the world. I've always argued that it's much better to live in a country worried about a high exchange rate than a country with a low exchange rate. And we also have to remember what kind of impacts that can have on our productivity because when you have a lower dollar, machinery prices are more expensive, investment will be discouraged, and of course it becomes more difficult to attract talent, especially in competition with the United States when our salaries become much lower than those in the United States. So there's consequences when you have a lower dollar, even if it's an offset to help those export-oriented industries facing higher carbon costs due to cap-and-trade or carbon tax policies. So I think, I think we have to move in a principle of trying to harmonize uh, with, with, on a regional basis particularly with how, uh, how carbon policies are, are evolving. And that, of course, does make the new administration in the United States a problem for Canada because we're going one direction on carbon policy uh, while another uh, government south of us is probably going to be more likely unwinding uh, some of the carbon policies that they've been moving uh, towards and uh, that might change in two elections from now, one election from now, uh, who knows, but right now that's an issue for us and we have to be very careful about how far we go down the road because the last thing we want to do is uh, hurt jobs uh, in, in Canada. And to the extent that if we do uh, hurt the Canadian economy uh, with policies that, let's say, are too aggressive relative to our neighbour to the south, uh, that could undermine political support for carbon policy, which would worry me if the intent of what we're trying to achieve is to make sure that we are able to deliver uh, reductions in our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, finally, let me just uh, end with this one point, and that is um, I do think that uh, carbon taxation is, is, a, is a good policy uh, from the point of allowing companies time uh, to develop new technologies. And I think the world should be a little careful not to rush too much into reducing emissions in a very short period because I think eventually the technologies will develop that will be consumer friendly, uh, that uh, don't need subsidies from governments and uh, actually could be even cheaper technologies than what we're used to right now. For example, it may be possible that down the road, electrical cars may actually be cheaper and better to run than a, than a gas-powered car. And that could happen, who knows, in maybe 50 years or whatever happens in terms of the evolution of that technology. And that, of course, will have a major impact on the demand for oil worldwide because people will want to buy electrical cars if they actually are better <laughs> and cheaper to run uh, than a gas-powered car. But technologies take time uh, to, to happen. 
And take, take for example, the oil sands. There are technologies for in situ oil sands uh, that uh, can reduce up to 50% greenhouse gas emissions associated with oil sand operations. But they're not ready yet. And in fact, uh, knowing one technology right now that's just coming into play, uh, in fact, it's still not quite ready, but it's, on, it's getting there. Uh, that thing has been under development for 15, 20 years. And the new technologies that are possible will take some time. But we're talking about 15, 20 years from now for these things to, to develop. And so we, but once they do develop, we could have major reductions in carbon emissions uh, worldwide well before 2100 when people are very concerned about the potential impact of greenhouse gas emissions on temperatures, which, by the way, is not certain because uh, even under the IPCC report, uh, the United Nations report, when you look at the forecasts and the probability of what could be the temperature change at somewhere between 1.1 to 6.4 degrees temperature. So there's a wide variation. There isn't a view that, oh, we know exactly how much the temperature is going to change because it's all based on modeling. And being an economist and who's done a lot of modeling, uh, I know how much uncertain uh, you can be with respect to that. So I think uh, uh, I really want to finish, I think, at this point and, uh, and, and to emphasize that, that the whole carbon issue is very complex. Uh, I think Alberta right now is half of it right uh, by moving towards a, a carbon tax uh, as a way of a single price. The other half that's wrong are all the regulatory and green subsidies that are being imposed. I think that should not have been part of the mandate. Uh, and, uh, and I think the use of the revenues could have been better done. Uh, I would have much rather have seen a, a smaller low-income tax credit not going up to such a high level. And instead, uh, you could even have another personal income tax rate bracket, but give a rate reduction, which would have been at least give you more impact on the economy in terms of encouraging work effort and risk-taking, and also have a general corporate rate reduction uh, to help many businesses who are not in uh, uh, who are not emitting uh, emissions, but are going to be facing higher costs. And so it would have been a movement towards more like the BC model that I think would have been uh, more appropriate uh, for Alberta in that sense. So uh, I do think that um, it's a difficult issue, and we'll probably hear a lot more. Uh, policy will evolve a lot more over the coming while. And in fact, there's still a lot of uncertainties in the way that regulations are being imposed right now. And that uh, those we're going to have to be cleared up if we're going to have at all any uh, environment for investment in in this province. Thank you very much. <laughs>